Well, we are, as you saw in the video bumper, we are continuing in our First Timothy series. Uh, today we'll be reading from First Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. If you have your Bibles, you could turn there, but it'll also be projected for you overhead. First Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. I'll read this for us, and may God the Holy Spirit bless the reading and preaching of his word. First Timothy 2, verse 1. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth. I am not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. This is God's word. Well, in our passage in 1 Timothy, this is a letter from the Apostle Paul to a younger pastor by the name of Timothy. And in this letter, we see Paul kind of, or in the part that we just read, the first section of chapter 2, we see a picture of the wideness of the love of God. Paul indicates in some very strong words uh, the sense that uh, we see it in verse 4 when he says, God desires all people to be saved. He's getting at the heart of God. Uh, In verse 6, he says that Jesus gave up his life as a payment and ransom for all. These are some big alls that we see in this passage. And these are strong statements. These are big statements. They express a a certain wideness, a certain inclusiveness of the love of God. And these statements, not only are they big statements, they can even be difficult statements when we get when we explore the deeper theological implications of that. And the reason Paul is getting at, you know, just, just making this point so clear that God desires all people to be saved. He is, Christ is the ransom, the payment for all, the sin, he, he's the, the savior of all. The reason Paul's making such strong statements like these, such, such wide statements, is because the context of Paul's letter. When Paul's writing this letter to Timothy, you've heard it in previous Sundays, Uh, At this Ephesian church, the church in Ephesus, of which Timothy is a pastor, there's a bunch of false teachers. There's a bunch of teachers giving some false teaching, things that are not, uh, that don't correspond with the gospel. And part of this false teaching is this exclusive elitist teaching. Basically saying that only certain types of people should be the people that we pray for and reach out to and who are even saved. It's a very narrow view of God's salvation that these false teachers had. Uh, It it was most likely uh, ethnic exclusivism where there was probably an overly Jewish emphasis and they marginalized the Gentiles, the non-Jews. And that's probably why Paul actually caps it real strong by saying, I'm a preacher, I've been appointed by God as a preacher and a teacher and an apostle to the Gentiles specifically. And he even says, I'm not lying. You know you're serious when you're like, I'm serious, I'm not lying, I'm not lying, I mean it, right? And he means it, he's saying, this is not, these false teachers are, te- are, are being very exclus- exclusive and elitist in the way that they're teaching and influencing you guys, but this is not the love of our God. 
The love of our God is not exclusive, it's inclusive. The love of our God is wide, not narrow. He's saying God is not like these false teachers. God is not like this false gospel that these teachers give. His salvation truly is an open invite for all. And in the Ephesian church, there was also issues with disorder, with disunity. If you read the rest of 1 Timothy, uh, we see Paul addressing those things as well. And you could probably assume it's because of these false teachings, right? If you're very exclusive and elitist, naturally, it's going to make, it's going to create disorder. It's going to create disunity, right? If, if for, for whatever reason, you, you just cherish something about yourself that makes you part of the club, part of the in crowd, part of the first class citizens versus the second class citizens, that's going to create some disorder. That's going to create a lack of peace, a lack of unity. And the first thing we gotta admit is we're all prone to this, right? This isn't just these, oh, the false teachers, they were exclusive, they were elitist, but not us good Christians. No, we have to first recognize we're all prone to this. We're all prone to it in our own ways, with our own different things that we identify ourselves with, that we tend to grasp onto so tightly that it becomes our identity, and that's what makes us part of the club. That's what makes us, perhaps even, we wouldn't say it out loud, but that's what makes us superior. I'm a sucker for this too. I'm, that's why I'm such a sucker for uh, those hotel like clubs. You know, I was once part of a hotel. Uh, I went to, I, I had enough nights at a certain hotel, and they gave me the special card. It said, gold elite member. And, that, and it helped me to not stand in line. I didn't have to stand in lines. I could, I could bypass the line and I looked at all the peons, right? all the, the second class citizens as I just walked right up to the front. I felt good, it made me feel special. And you know, that's a silly example, but we're all prone to this. Right? We all have to address this in our hearts. And once again, Paul is saying, that's not our God. God is not like this. God is not exclusive. God is not elitist. God is wide in his love. His love is wide. And of course, as we explore this passage further, we do have to address some of the theological questions that do come up. It would be a disservice to you all if we just skirted those questions. So we'll do that first. We'll address the theological questions. Secondly, we'll uh, talk about what this wide, inclusive love of God is not. And then thirdly, we'll talk about some of the practical implications of for us as God's people if God's love is wide. So theological questions, what this wide inclusive love does not mean, what it's not, and then lastly, the practical implications for us. So naturally, hey, we got to ask the theological questions. If you ever look up this passage, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, in any kind of Bible commentary, uh, you'll find, especially for verse 4, there'll be a lot written on that one, because there's a lot of questions. There's a lot of discussion to be had, a lot of debate. I'm not going to claim to have, uh, you know, the full, perfect understanding of it, but we're going to try to address it, because some When we read this, God desires all men, which just simply means all people to be saved. God desires all people to be saved. Naturally, some questions arise. First, we gotta ask ourselves, what does Paul mean when he says God desires all people to be saved, all men to be saved? And then, of course, the the natural second question that arises is, if God desires all men to be saved, all people to be saved, why doesn't everyone, why doesn't everyone come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ? Right, those are some natural questions. We're gonna, this, it's going to get a little theological, so please, let, let's just brace yourselves. Let's put on our thinking caps. We'll try to get into it. All right, so when it comes to that first question, what does Paul even mean when he says God desires all men, all people to be saved? 
You may, if you've studied this passage even just a little, you may have heard this. You may have heard some people say, Paul is saying God desires all kinds of people to be saved. All races, all uh, social classes, all ages. He wants, God wants all kinds of people to be saved. And of course, we all agree with that, right? I, uh, Paul would agree with that. Paul would love that because Paul cares so much about combating these exclusivistic, elitist, uh, false teachers. So of course, he would agree with that. He would love that. He would say, yes, God does want all kinds of people to be saved. And that's true for us too. I think we would all agree with that. But I do tend to lean towards the, the interpretation of many, many scholars who actually say, although Paul would agree with this, this is probably not what Paul's trying to communicate here. It would be a little more clear. He would say it more clearly if he meant all kinds of people. There are many interpreters, and I, I tend to agree with them, that Paul is not speaking all technically and specifically. He's speaking very generally. He's saying, no, God wants all people to be saved. Just very generally. God desires all people to be saved. Not kinds. He's not getting all technical. Just all kinds. He wants all people to be saved. And then naturally that leads to our second question up there. If God desires all men to be saved, just very simply, very generally, very straightforwardly, then why doesn't everyone come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ? That's a little bit harder, right? That's a little bit harder. If we just said, ah, it just means God desires all, people, uh, all kinds of people to be saved, question's answered and we can move on. It's a little bit tougher if we say, I think God just means quite, just face value. God wants everyone to be saved. And of course, uh, there's other, 1 Timothy is not the only passage that speaks that way. We have another passage. We have many passages. I'll just give you one. Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 32. In the Old Testament, God, through the prophet Ezekiel, says this. Once again, Ezekiel 18, 32. For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God. So turn and live. And actually, that's verse 32, but in verse, if you flip that, verse 23 of chapter 18 in Ezekiel, God says something very similar. And, and he's making it quite clear. I don't, I don't have pleasure. I don't, I, don't, I don't like the fact that anyone would die. And of course, this isn't just physical death God is talking about, but even a spiritual death. I have no pleasure in the death of anyone. Therefore, turn and live. Turn and repent, basically. So why doesn't everyone get saved if, if God doesn't desire or rather, God desires all men to be saved. God doesn't delight. He do, God doesn't get any pleasure in, in people perishing without knowing him. And we do have to get into the will of God here. When, when we see the word desire in the New Testament, in the original language, in the Greek, that word can also at times mean the will of God. And obviously, when we talk about God's desires, just naturally, we think of the will of God And there's something, uh, uh, this is a little bit more of a deeper theology, but we do have to uh, understand that when we read the Bible, and whenever the Bible talks about the will of God, there are two senses in which we can understand the will of God. There are two senses. And so, after I've given this message, if you want to look it up further, just Google it, the two wills of God. Uh, Make sure you're looking up good authors, though. And... uh, you know, because you could just Google anything. Anyone could write anything on the internet, right? But the two wills of God, I, I, we have it uh, for you on the screen. First, there's the secret will of God. There's a lot of different synonyms, right? There's this, these all mean the same thing, the secret will or the will of decree, the decreative will of God, or even the sovereign will of God. That's what God, when we see that in the Bible, when we see when God wills something, 
A lot of times we're talking about the sovereign will, the secret will, what God causes to happen. In other words, uh, when you read the Bible and you see like a phrase like, according, this happened according to the will of God. Clearly that's talking about the secret will, the sovereign will of God. Or it, uh, Paul says, if the Lord wills, then we'll do this. Once again, that's getting at the sovereign, secret, decreative will of God. Paul even says about himself, I'm an apostle called by the will of God. You know, so for that first will, the secret will, the sovereign will, just think God's plan, God's purpose, God making things happen. But that's actually not the only way that we understand the will of God when we read the Bible. There's also the second one, as you see up there, the revealed will of God, the will of command, the moral will of God. These are, once again, all synonyms. And this... This gets at what God wants us to pursue and live out. It's a a different sense. In the Bible, we might see phrases that Jesus even says it. Do the will of God. My, my, My loved ones are the ones who do the will of God. Or how about when we see in the Bible uh, the the calls, we are called to live for the will of God or live the will of God. Or more specifically, 1 Thessalonians 4.3 Paul says, it is the will of God for you to be holy. It is the will of God for you to be uh, sexually pure, abstain from sexual immorality. That's a different kind of will of God. Right? That, that's God's will that we, have, we are called to live out. It's his moral will. It's his will of command. And somehow, I mean, you know, this isn't just something that theologians made up just so they, they could sound smart and confuse you. Oh, sovereign will, revealed will, and all these big terms. This is something that, that has been put together because this is what we see in the Bible. Just when we talk about the will of God, we see both. And we have to understand that both are at play, that both work together. We can say that God desires and wills one thing, and yet in his secret and sovereign will, he allows something else. Just think of even the example I gave. God, it's the will of God for you to be holy. Well, I'll tell you right now, there's a lot of times, more times than not, that I'm not holy. There's, more, there's a lot of times I have not lived out the will of God in that sense. And yet we can always say in God's secret will, in his sovereign will, his plan is are still being established. It's his, his, his secret and sovereign will is not thwarted, even though I, did not, I was not holy. And we have some examples that I want to give from the, from the Old Testament. Genesis chapter 50, Joseph and his brothers. Joseph and his technicolor dream coat. This is a little side note, very unimportant for me to share this, but just, you could ask me about it later. I don't want to talk too much about it, but I almost was part of the musical production, the Broadway musical, Joseph and the Technicolor dream coat at the Pantages Theater. I tried out, I made it. I actually made it. But then they cut me later. Uh, for other reasons. Ask me, I'll tell you about it later. But in that story, so that's so unnecessary, but I always have to talk about that when we talk about Joseph. In the story of Joseph in Genesis 50, Joseph, he, he's, if, you've, if you know that story, and if you, ha- if you don't know that story, go read it in, in the book of Genesis. So powerful, uh, such a testament of God's faithfulness. Joseph is prideful and his brothers hate him. And so they sell him into slavery. Basically, they're hoping that he dies. They basically are trying to kill him and they sell him into slavery. They think he just, his life is ruined, his life will end. But instead, by the grace of God, he comes into a high position in the courts of Egypt. And by Genesis 50, he's reunited with these brothers who basically tried to kill him. 
and they're all scared of him. Oh my gosh, that's actually Joseph. Please, you know, and, and Joseph actually forgives them. There's this just great reunion. They're crying, they're hugging. And Joseph says something very important in Genesis chapter 50. He says, brothers, you tried to sell me. You tried to kill me. You meant this for evil, but God meant this for good. You meant this for evil. You're not off the hook. Yes, I believe that God is all-powerful. He's sovereign. He's in control. His plan is established, and, he li- and he, you know, nothing can thwart his secret and sovereign plans. And yet, what you did was not the will of God. To, to try to kill your brother is not the will of God. You did evil. You disobeyed the revealed moral will of God. You went against that. And yet, the plan of God his sovereign secret will was still established. We see both happening at the same time. We see both. We see both. In Acts chapter 2, verse 23, with just when Peter's preaching about Jesus himself, he says, Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, the secret sovereign will of God. But he was crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. These evil men who crucified and killed an innocent man, Jesus. They weren't off the hook. They were still responsible. They still, in in one sense, God's plan, God's will happened. God's plan happened. But in another sense, these evil and lawless men who crucified Jesus went against the will of God as well. They went against his revealed will. And we see both. We see both. That's my point. We, just, we always see both. We see this dichotomy. God's sovereign will, God's revealed will, God's secret will, God's uh, moral will. And then as a result, we see God is in control, and yet man is still responsible for what he does. We always see both. We always see both. As Proverbs 16, 9 says, the heart of man plans his ways. We make our choices. We make our decisions. But the Lord establishes his steps. I think you get it. All this to say, we see both. And if you've been been at our church for some time, you know that we're uh, a reformed church. Our theology is what we call reformed. You might call it Calvinist. We believe in God's sovereignty. We believe in predestination. We believe that God is in control of all things. But please don't forget that we see both in the Bible. We see God's sovereignty. We never deny that. And yet we always see man's responsibility as well. And how both work together, how the secret will of God and the revealed will of God work together, how the sovereign will of God and the moral will of God work together, I'll be the first to admit, I can't explain that perfectly or even well. It's mysterious, it is. And yet, we see both so clearly in the scriptures. And, f- and I know whenever we talk about, whenever we use the word mystery, oh, we, we can't understand it. It seems like a cop-out, but at the same time, if this is about the way God operates, it's going to be mysterious, right? Because if I could fully explain the way God ex- operates, then either I'm God or I'm not talking about God. Right? There is going to be a mysterious element to it, but what we see throughout the scriptures is both. God's sovereignty, man's responsibility, two wills of God, his, more, uh, his sovereign will, his plan, but also his revealed will where we can say in a very true sense, God desires all men to be saved. God does not delight in the, in the perishing of the wicked. And, I, and at this point, as your heads are boggled and you're like, what are you talking about? This is so much. We do need to take a step back. We do need to take a step back because 
Paul, I have to admit, Paul is not trying to make a theological point here. Paul is not trying to get into some deep theological debate by saying God desires all men to be saved. We do have to take a step back and recognize Paul is just making a practical point. So as you walked out of here, don't get too caught up in the theological nitty-gritty, as important as it is, and, and as much as we do need to talk about it, and we should talk about it. We, gotta, we have to get back to the text. Why does Paul say this? Not because he wants to get into a conversation of the will of God. Paul says this because he's saying this is the inclusive nature of the gospel. God desires all people to be saved. He's talking about the wideness of the love of God. He's saying, well, at least if you pressed him, he would say, yeah, we don't know the secret will of God. We don't know God's plans. We don't know what's happening in the future. We don't know what God's even doing right now inside people's hearts. We can't see that. But we can be sure when you look at someone and, and you see someone who doesn't know Jesus, that there's a very true and real and biblical sense in which you can say God desires that person to be saved. There's a very true and real sense in saying, when you look at someone who doesn't know Jesus, God does not delight in that person perishing without knowing him. And that knowledge should light a fire under our feet and in our hearts. Right? That, that knowledge of, of the wideness and inclusive nature of the love of God should make us say, you know what? My, I, I don't want to just reach out to the, those certain people that, that maybe I feel like they're prone to accept the gospel. The, oh, that person looks like someone who would want to be a Christian. Or, or this is someone who, you know, based on his race or life stage or background, whatever it may be, that's why I think I should reach to this person. No, we got to read Paul saying, offer it to all. Offer it all. There's actually a doctrine called the free offer of the gospel. Because we don't know the secret will of God, but we do know the revealed will of God, we offer it to all. And we look at all as people that God desires to be saved. And you know, for those of you who, for this, where, where this isn't just about outreach and evangelism, but for those of you who even, it's about your own life and your own heart and your own experience, especially after you've learned about things like predestination and Calvinism, I've heard so many people feel expressed to me that they're tripped up about it. They, they say things like, I don't know if I'm saved. I don't know if I'm chosen. I don't know if, uh, if I'm part of the elect. And let me encourage you, even when you look at yourself, when you look at yourself, you can say, God desires me to be saved. You never have to question that. God does not delight in me perishing without knowing him. You don't have to be tripped up if you recognize you need a savior and you know that savior is Jesus Christ, you never have to be worried that you're not saved. As Christ says in John chapter 6, 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me. There's the sovereign will of God. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. God, Jesus wants you. He won't cast you out. He will not cast you out. And so... We get into this theological question, but the more important thing is the practical thing that Paul's getting at. God's love is wide. God's love is wide. And let's move on to the same point. Well, if God's love is wide, we still have to get at what this wide and inclusive love does not mean. God's wide and inclusive love does not mean that you won't change. It does not mean that you don't have to change or that you won't change. Yes, Jesus invites all to himself, to his, to his household, 
Jesus invites all to his salvation. But this is not just some feel-good message where, you know, just believe whatever you want, do whatever you want. It's all good. Right? That's not the point of Paul's, Paul's message here or the Bible's message. In this invitation, we see that uh, there's, a, it's a, there's a wideness to it, a wideness to God's love, but there's not a wide number of gods. There's not a wide number of saviors. It's a little bit even jarring, the contrast. Paul uses the word all so powerfully, and yet in one verse, in verse five, he says, for there is one God, not all gods, but there's one God, and there is one mediator, Jesus Christ. Those ones are strong too. The alls are strong in the other verses we read, but those ones are strong as well. And Paul's saying to his audience, you know, his, his audience is the Gentiles. He's a preacher to the Gentiles. They're, they're coming from the Greco-Roman world. They had a pantheon of gods. They had all sorts of gods. And he's saying, when you come to Christ, yes, he invites you. Yes, he includes you. Yes, he brings you in. But your gods will change. You won't have all these gods anymore. You'll have one God. There's only one God. You have all these ways in your mind of salvation. You have all these mediators, all these ways to get to God. But Paul's saying, there's only one mediator. There's only one true mediator, and that's Jesus Christ himself. Not all, but one. The, the, the message of salvation, the message of the gospel, is an inclusive invitation to all. But it is exclusively in Christ alone. When, you, when you're loved by a love like that, it doesn't leave you the same, basically. It changes you. It changes. It, 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 Jesus, when he loves you with his wide love, it gets rid of all your other gods. It gets rid of all your other mediators, all those things you cling to so tightly for your identity, all those things that perhaps make you part of the club, part of the in-group, part of the, the, the ones who have it good, all those things we cling to. Jesus says, you're gonna change. I'm going to get rid of those because there's only one mediator and one God, and that's me. You know, for years and years and years, Christians have been using this phrase, come just as you are. We love that phrase, right? Come just as you are. You know, and people use that phrase when we tell them you got to dress a little nicer to church. No, I want to come just as I am, right? Uh, there's, there's even songs that have it, an old school praise song. You know, come just as you are to worship. Just kidding, I'm not gonna sing the whole song. Um, Come just as you are is a very good phrase. It really does reflect the wide invitation and inclusive love of God. But there's more to that phrase, isn't there? It's not just come just as you are, as important and as good as that is. Jesus says, come just as you are, but he will never leave you as you are. We have to remember that. Yes, come just as you are, but I'm never gonna just leave you as you are. I'm not gonna just leave you like that. I'm gonna transform you. I'm gonna sanctify you. I'm gonna grow you. I'm gonna teach you. I'm gonna help you get rid of all these other false gods and identities that are not me. The inclusive, wide love of God does not mean you won't change. Let's move on to the last part, the practical implications. If God's love is wide and inclusive like this, if Paul really meant it, that there is a very true and real sense in which God desires all men to be saved, even though we wrestle with the complexities of the sovereign will of God and how that plays out, still we recognize at the end of the day, I can say there is a true and real sense in which God desires all men to be saved. Well, what does that mean for me as God's people? What does that mean for you as God's people? What are some of the practical implications? Well, I think the first one we find is at the very start of our passage. 
First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Those four words, supplications, prayers, intercession, thanksgiving, those are all just different words for prayer. Paul is basically saying, if God loves all in this kind of a way, if God loves with a wide love, then we should be praying in a wide way as well. We should be praying for all as well. We shouldn't just be praying for certain people, the people I like or the people I, 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 I uh, tend towards. Paul's saying, pray for all. And you know why he actually gives, the only example he gives is kings and people in high places. I think that it's easy to assume Paul is saying something along the lines of, you know, it's important to get involved with your city leaders or your government leaders. It's important to get involved with politics. So pray for your government leaders. And that's great. It is good to be involved in politics, but that's not what Paul's getting at. You know why Paul says pray for kings and and rulers and those who are in high positions? Because those are the exact people they didn't want to pray for. Think about who the kings and rulers are. The emperor during the time of the Ephesian church was Nero, somebody who persecuted and hated on the church. I agree with John Calvin in his commentary. He says that Paul was telling Christians to pray for their rulers because those were the people that Christians hated the most. Christians hated those rulers. And that's why Paul has to say, pray for them. Right? You don't have to command, pray for these people when it's like, pray for your best friend. Pray for your, the people, pray for your children. No one really has to command you to do that. You're going to do that naturally. But Paul's saying, pray for these people who persecute you, who even hate you. Pray for these people who rub you the wrong way. Pray for these people that you don't have peace with. Pray for these people that you cringe when you think of the thought of praying for them. Paul's saying, that's who you need to pray for. If God's love is wide, then that's who you need to be praying for as well. Yes, pray for those you love. Pray for all your friends and family. But God is saying, or Paul, inspired by God the Holy Spirit, is saying, pray for even those whom you don't have peace with. As Jesus himself said, Matthew 5, 44, pray for those who persecute you. Jesus said it very clearly himself. Pray for those who persecute you. And perhaps that's even fitting today, this example that Paul gives for your leaders, right, for, the, for your government leaders. I don't, know, I don't know how many people, I can't assume that many people pray for our president, Donald Trump. I mean, what, just no matter what side of the political spectrum you're on, I think it's easy to criticize our president. It's easy to disagree with him. There's a lot of things we could disagree with him on. But how much do we pray for him? And, and by the way, when we say pray for those who persecute, pray for even your enemies, this one doesn't count, right? God, strike him down. Right, God, curse him. Right, no, that, that's, not, that, that's not what Paul's getting at. Praise, Paul is saying pray for their blessing. Pray that God would be glorified in their life. Pray that God, would, uh, that God would save this person even. That's the ultimate point. And so I want to encourage you, very practical, very practical application. Before you say one criticism of any of your leaders, especially our government leaders, pray for them first. Before you express any disagreement, which you're entitled to, pray for them first. And if you don't care about politics, that's fine. <laughs> Pray for those who you are not prone to pray for. Pray for those that you cringe when you think of praying for them. And secondly, our second practical implication, and we're done. 
Paul actually gives a very fitting follow-up to what he says here in his next letter to Timothy. In 2 Timothy, uh, it's projected for you. In 2 Timothy 2, 24 to 25, here's what Paul says also to Timothy. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. First of all, that's a great example of actually what we talked, talked about, about the two wills of God, God's sovereignty and uh, God's revealed will, God's uh, secret will and God's moral will, will of command. We see God's sovereignty and man's responsibility here. God may perhaps grant them repentance. Clearly, that's the sovereign will of God we're talking about there, where it's God who does it. But notice that Paul doesn't just say, well, you know, God, God will save those he'll save, so Timothy, you can relax. Just, you don't have to do anything. You could even be a jerk. You could be mean to these people. It's fine. God will save them if he wants to. He didn't say that. He says, Timothy, you're the Lord's servant. You must not be quarrelsome. You must be kind, not just to the people you like, but to everyone. You must be able to teach them patiently, enduring even evil, not just annoyance, but even evil, and correcting your opponents, people who disagree with you, people who argue with you with gentleness. Right? We see it both. You gotta do these things. You gotta live out this will of God. And perhaps God's sovereign will, by his sovereign will, he'll lead them to a knowledge of the truth. We, Timoth- uh, Paul doesn't explain it, how that works, but he just puts them both together and he has no problem with that. We see that, but more importantly, once again, we see this is the effect of the wideness of the love of God. If you've experienced the wideness of the love of God, if you've, if you've been included by the love of God in his inclusive love, if you've experienced that, it, even in the slightest, it, what happens? It widens our love. It makes us actually able to deal gently with those who oppose us, to be patient and kind with those who oppose us, to be patient not only with the people who oppose you, but to be patient with the people who just can't get their acts together. How about just people like that? People who just, just seem like they just don't get it or, or the, their lives, they just keep messing up. They keep struggling, they keep falling. Maybe you feel like that about yourself. We could actually be patient with them and even patient with yourself if you've experienced the wideness of the love of God. I love this one story that a pretty hip pastor tells. He's like a pastor of a progressive uh, hip church where a lot of the members of that church are new Christians. And they come from an area where there's not a lot of Christians. And he tells this funny story about how at his church one day on a Sunday, a very conservative person came into that church who who came from a a place where there were a lot of Christians. And that person was a Christian for a long time. And as that person sat through the service, this pastor could tell that that person was getting more and more uncomfortable with the people around her. And after the service, she walked up to the pastor and said, Pastor, I, I, I hope that you're aware of this, but some people were smoking outside. They were, some of your church members were smoking outside. And the pastor said, what were they smoking? He said, cigarettes. And he goes, oh, that's good. Because before they were smoking something else. <laughs> and she said, also, some of your, your sisters, some of the women at this church, they're wearing uh, very revealing clothing. Are you guys okay with that? And he said, oh, oh, you know, that, the one, that one lady who was wearing kind of more revealing clothing than others, at one point she had a job where she didn't wear any clothing. 
I'm just thankful she's wearing any clothing at all now. And, you know, this, it's a funny story, but it's a true one. And his point is not to encourage uh, provocative clothing or to encourage smoking cigarettes. But his point is, these people were in a very different part of their journey. They're, they're on the journey, but they're in a very different part of it. They're in, you could probably, you know, perhaps you could say they're in an earlier part, a lower part of that journey. But they're still on the journey. And when we know the wideness of the love of God, we actually can be patient with people in all sorts of places in their journeys. You could even argue the conservative person was, was far back in, in, her, in her journey in some ways too. And we can be patient with them all, is the point. We can be gentle with them all. Because we know God has been gentle and patient with us if we've experienced the wideness of the love of God. As one Christian counselor famously said, it's not about the distance or the speed of your journey, but the direction. It's not about the distance or the speed, but the direction. I love that. I love that. When, you've, when you feel impatient with a brother or a sister, when you feel impatient with your own progress in life, spiritually or status-wise, in your career, in your family, whatever it may be, you can always remember God's love for you is wide. It's not about the distance or the speed, but the direction. As long as I belong to Jesus, as long as I run to him, as long as he's teaching me, growing me, even if it's just a little by little every day, I, I'm good, I'm with him, I'm okay. And this sort of love for, for you, when you've been loved like this, you can love like this. When you've experienced the wideness of the love of God, you, your love, how can it not widen? And of course, we have to remember Jesus demonstrated that in the most powerful way. When you and I were not lovable by any means, when you and I were not part of any elite group or exclusive club by any means, but all we were were a part of this group called sinners, the enemies of God, as we sang earlier, the foes of God. That's all we could claim for ourselves, and yet Jesus loved us with a love so wide that he would give himself up. As we read in our passage, he would make himself the ransom for us. Because of our sin, we had an infinite debt. We had a payment to be paid that we couldn't afford. And Jesus, with his infinite worth of himself, his blood on that cross shed, he would pay that. It would be the ransom paid for you. That's the kind of wide love we experience. Not when we were lovely, not when we were, were appealing, not when we were friends of God, but when we were enemies of God. Not just apathetic towards God, but straight up enemies is what we are in our sin. And Jesus would love you still and love you to the point of death, even on a cross. Would that be what widens your love? Would that be what causes you to say, you know what? God's love is so inclusive. God's love is so wide. How dare I let my love be exclusive and elitist and narrow? Church, would that sink in for you more and more every day? Would that gospel truth, the fact that when you look at yourself even, you can say with full confidence, God desires for me to be saved. God does not delight in me not knowing him. And would that be what widens your love? Let's pray. You know, let's take a moment. We, we just read a passage encouraging us to pray, and it's very fitting then to pray. I want you to take a moment. Please pray for those you are prone not to pray for. Just think of at least one person that you are really not prone to pray for. 
and maybe it's our leaders. Pray for them at this time, and then I'll close this in a little bit. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful that as we talk about this wide and inclusive love, that it doesn't just apply to the stuff that we're now supposed to emulate, but Lord, that the most important application is you've loved us like that. And we could say that about everyone in this room, that you've loved us like that. You desire to know us, to bring us in. You desire to change our hearts. You desire to forgive our sins. You desire to make us more and more like your son, Jesus Christ. I thank you for that. I thank you for that wideness of your love, for that inclusion, for including me, a sinner like me. And Lord, we do pray that that would make a difference. That that would make a difference in how we look at people. That would make a difference in how we pray for people. That would make a difference in how we invite people. That would make a difference in how we judge people, how we're patient with people. Oh, Lord, we thank you for the gospel, and we ask that we wouldn't just stop at gratitude, but we would move on to living it out, living out your revealed will. We need your help for this. We always need your help. We need your grace. We need your mercy. We need your spirit moving mightily in your church, in your sons, in your daughters. Thank you, Lord, that we can pray these things in great expectation. For we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.